Welcome to Business Influencers with Tal Radio. Hope everyone is having a great week. We got a great show today. We're going to be talking with Ernie Panicoli about uh, hip hop at the end of the world. And Ernie is a legendary hip hop photographer. He is a best-selling author, an activist, which I'm going to let him talk a little bit more about that, and a lecturer. And without further ado, we welcome Ernie to the show. Ernie, how you doing? Peace. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the show. I love the fact I've heard so many great things about you when it comes to, you know, not only being a photographer, being in hip hop for all these years, but, you know, also being an activist, a lecturer and how you really want to make a difference in the world. I'd like to find out a little bit more about your journey, starting with hip hop, where it started and, and where it's taken you today in terms of you being an activist and a lecturer and everything that you do. Wow. <laughs> do you have six, seven hours? Uh, we could... <laughs> we'll do the condensed version, but then we'll continue another time. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know. I woke up one morning and I was 74 years old and everything else seems like a dream. Uh, Biggie Smalls, one of the most famous rappers, mentioned me in one of his songs. And I was at that time the chief photographer for Word Up magazine. And he said, it was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine, salt and pepper up in the limousine. And, you know, we were at some event and he singled me out and told everybody that he had dedicated that song to me. So I asked him, I said, why didn't you throw my name in? And he cursed at me and said, MF, he said, nobody can pronounce your last name, number one. And number two, what the hell can you rhyme Panacoli with? <laughs> Uh, it was all a dream. It seems like a dream. Uh, for 45 years or so, I've been documenting hip-hop. And the reason that I became involved in hip-hop, because I'm the least hip-hoppy guy in the world. No tattoos. You know, I don't curse every three seconds. Uh, I don't have my pants sagging. I, you know, none of that. And if you listen to my music, my you, you'll be shocked. It's mostly John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Gil Scott Heron. So, you know, <laughs> you say, how the hell did this guy become part of, uh, inducted into the Hip Hop Hall of Fame? That's, that's you know, uncanny. But the reason, there, there were two reasons, and I want to share this with your audience, that I became involved with hip hop. Because as an activist, I saw hip hop giving a voice to the voiceless. Our people had no voice. The only time you saw us was in handcuffs or looking stupid or saying, yeah, Kimo Sabi, you know, and go get the horses, Tonto. And, you know, it doesn't say much about our media. It doesn't say much about our awareness that you relegate an entire group of people, or groups of people to uh, secondary citizen status via your imagery. So when I became a hip hop photographer, I made a vow that I would show our people as regal, royal, and godlike. And if you look at my images, you'll see that I kept it, not in a phony way, not static, quite the opposite. Usually my pictures are very warm and friendly, but they also show the human and spiritual side of us. And the reason, one of the reasons that I became involved with hip hop, besides the fact that I saw it as a revolutionary art form in that we finally have a voice, we can express, but there were indigenous parts to hip hop. In other words, in hip hop, you have an MC, that's the, the rapper. Yep. Well, we have holy men and teachers and storytellers. And then you had in hip hop, you have the DJ. We have the drum. Yes. 
when someone gets married or you have a baby or you're going to war, or you have a good crop, you use the drum and dance. Hip hop has B-boy dance. Well, we got dance. So I saw the similarities. And then they said, well, you didn't have graffiti. We've got sand painters and we have people <laughs> that do incredible paintings. So they're like, oh, and the fifth element of hip hop is the one that enticed me the most. In hip hop, the fifth element is wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And all indigenous tribes have the elders and the medicine men, and that's what they teach. That's how we survive, is through a spiritual link with the land, with the animals, with the sky, with the earth, with the universe around us. We don't think we own anything. Natives didn't own land. That's like, we call the land Mother Earth. How can you own your mother? Exactly. How can you buy and sell your mother? That, that was insanity to us. So that's how I became involved with and enamored of hip-hop, pure hip-hop. Not, yes. not a lot of what... <laughs> <laughs> not, well, not, not, not not the odious part of hip-hop <laughs> so tell us i mean a little bit about like you know like some of the things that you you know in your journey you know when you got into hip-hop you saw a lot of the, the values of you know who you are and how that related to hip-hop that you like you saw that synergy what were some of the things that really like that, that brought that it brought out your strengths other you know other than being a, a fantastic photographer I, I learned by being compelled to do certain things. I learned, uh, for example, I was asked to uh, do gang summits. Gang summits are where you get two brutal gangs together and you try to defuse, disarm, and de-escalate the tension between them. And I learned... A mediator, yeah. Yeah, I, I learned to be a speaker and I learned to not talk to people, but talk with people and listen to people and the first time we did it, we did it in Harlem at, at a, a theater. And we had security there who took the guns and knives from, from the gang members. And when I went out to, to the lobby, there was a whole stack of guns and knives. Holy smokes. And then when we had them in the room, we had one gang here, one gang here, one gang here. They all sat separate and they were staring at each other. And we didn't know exactly how it would turn out. The second year we did it, we had about one-fifth of the weaponry, and we also tried something that was a little bit insane. We had the, the, the people just sit wherever they wanted. And when you're sitting with someone, it's different than you're looking over at them from the other side of the room. So we got them to agree to listen to one another, and we allowed them. We had different... I remember one little skinny kid from uh, California. He was from a gang in the West Coast. He was from LA or Compton. And he got up and he said, you people in this room don't know how lucky you are. You can get up in the morning and put on anything you want, any kind of clothes you want. Where I'm from, you can't wear red and go through a blue neighborhood. Sort of like the Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, literally. <laughs> That's another gang that uses colors. Uh, he said, you can't go into certain neighborhoods and wear red without getting killed. And you can't go into certain neighborhoods and wear blue without getting killed. And he broke it all down. He said, here, you put on any color you want and nobody bothers you. Of course, that was some 20 years ago. And now you have to be careful what neighborhoods you go through in Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, you know, all the different boroughs, you have to be careful what colors you wear. So you have to wear either neutral colors or, you know, non-offensive colors like black or gray or green. So you learn from these interactions. And what, what I learned 
was that I have a voice and how to use that voice and how to channel that voice and how to channel that energy and defuse situations without using the things that were taught, you know, the martial arts, the, uh, you know, all of that. And um, so that's, that's a lesson I've learned. Wow. That's great. That's fantastic. And, you know, you've done so many things like, you know, you, you know, being a photographer, you're also, you know, you've written you, this prompted you to be a, you know, an author, you, you know, you're a bestselling author, you've lectured around the world and you're an activist and talk about, you know, that from that perspective in terms of, you know, you know, helping people and creating awareness of some of the things that are so important in our world that we we often take for granted. Anything you'd like to share on that? Yeah. As an author, a lecturer, an artist, if you're successful, you start making a lot of money and you start, you have the ability to acquire physical things or, you know, stuff. (laughs) And growing up really poor, I mean, really poor, I didn't have stuff. And I found out I didn't need stuff. I don't need $400 sneakers. We used to wear Converse that were like $5 and they'd last a whole year until your feet were too big. Uh, so, you know, when you have this, this access to stuff, you know, you say, what's really valuable? What's really important? And coming from a martial arts Zen background, you realize that all of the things that matter are internal and how you can influence the world around you external. And you learn how to bring people together. You learn to listen. You learn to embrace people. You learn to embrace cultures. And you become very, very, very wealthy, very rich, because your spirit acquires that 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 magic, that that heart, that that love. And you know, the physical things, you know, that's that's cool. I'm not, you know, I'm not anti-capitalist. I'm not going to go into a socialist rant, but <laughs> you you learn that the essential things, uh, Anton de Saint-Ospere, who wrote The Little Prince, he, he wrote that the things that are essential to the heart are invisible to the eye. Very good. So what would be some of the things like, you know, just based on your experience, you know, being, you know, being in hip hop, being an activist, you know, lecturing around the world, what are some of the things that you could see that, you know, what we have to like overall as people, what can we learn? Like, what can we, what are some of the things like those values that are true to you that what we could, you know, that we can help other people to see that themselves and how we can come together in a better way? Think. A lot of people don't notice, and I'm going to share a secret with you. I did a book on punk called Punk Life. And one day I was walking near CBGB's in New York. Oh, yeah. And I saw this girl with pink hair. And I went up to her, and because I'm a big guy, she was a little bit standing back, you know. And I said, may I ask you some questions? May I speak with you? She said, yeah. And I asked her why she had her hair like that. And she started talking to me and we walked and we went to meet some of her friends and I asked her to photograph them and I began to listen and photograph. So even though punk seems like an external thing about clothes, there there was other things going on. And my point is that there are multiple cultures in America. You go to certain places in the world and they are culturally one dimensional. In the United States, you have so much. So I documented punk, I documented hip hop, I documented the B-boys and the DJs and the rappers. And my first initial take into that was documenting these incredible, masterful, untrained graffiti artists. And 
they crave murals and they never went to school. They didn't learn composition and, you know, all the color separations. They didn't, they, they just had this, this desire to be seen and to create. So I think being a photographer taught me to watch, to listen, to absorb, and most important, especially now, to appreciate all these art forms and all this creativity and all this magic. Yeah, it's cool to make money, you know, but a lot of times when you make money, and I've worked with millionaires and multimillionaires, and to them, they spend their whole day like this, look, and the only thing that they live for is more. Yeah. And then, you know, I said, wait, how much more do you want? How much more do you need? And they actually would, would come visit me or, or call me to their homes just to talk to them because I get them down off that high. Yeah. I, I detox them and, and make them understand, yeah, you can make money and you can have things, but when you own things, sometimes those things own you, yeah. which goes back to Zen Buddhism. That's true. You know? I, that, that's a great point. It's so true. And I think a lot of people get caught up in that. I remember... You know, Jim Carrey says, I wish everyone can experience becoming, you know, having fame and fortune and then realizing that's not what, what it's about. You know, yeah. there's yeah. more to life. It's not about the material things. So you may, I love that point that you made. I spent time talking with two people who were killed recently by fentanyl, uh, Michael Jackson and Prince. Unfortunately, I never got a chance to be with both of them at once. And, and Michael was the most gentle, caring, simple person I think I ever met. And he had an aura about him that he did not know how to control. You know, he'd go on stage and it'd go like this. And 300 people would start screaming. Uh, 20 people would faint. And he didn't know how to harness that power or where it came from. And we talked about that. And Prince was this very quiet little guy. And talking to him, I found myself listening to him for hours. His perspective on everything was totally Zen-like, very, very different. And I'm sorry that they never gave him a radio show or a TV show or a podcast or something where he could detox us yeah. from a lot of the addictions that we have to stuff. And he also, I, I remember in one conversation, we spoke for about an hour on time, just time. He said, everyone has a certain amount of time. We all have the same amount of time in a day. And he went like this, symbolizing the hours. And we all have a certain amount of time. We all have the same amount of time. And we don't all have the same amount of time on the earth. And one of the things you have to do is learn how to manage your time. Yeah. And he would get up early in the morning and start making music. And, you know, he, he was obsessed with time. And time is something that in the West, we don't value. Even how, you know, people say, oh, I know people that, that are working five jobs in one job, meaning they're working one job, but they, they could have easily been working five because of their intensity. And they never learned the one Zen quality, the most important, detachment. Mm. Even in martial arts, I was blessed to have a sensei who taught me detachment because a lot of these guys, come, <laughs> you know, they'd, they'd be ferocious and they were easily defeated because they were obsessed with and then you get another guy come in, he'd be like, and you knew <laughs> this guy, you, you're like, you just go up to him and you say, peace, you know, because he was just totally, you know, <laughs> and you have to learn 
as an artist, as a person who has to deal with the business, as a person who has to deal with family, as a person who has to deal with racism, activism, creativity, you have to learn one major thing, and that's detachment. Yeah, I you agree. Have, if you have, if you're involved and it owns you, you're not free. Detachment means that you don't, you're not owned by anything and you don't own anything. You're here temporarily. So everything you have is rented. It is. It's true. I, I, I've learned 22 years ago that I was so attached to expectations, to outcomes, you know, certain things that I thought would bring me happiness because all, all of that was outside of me. And when I learned how to really bring everything into the moment from, you know, from past and future, like that fixed mindset into a growth mindset, when I could trust the process of controlling what I can, letting go what I can't, and just focusing on what I could, you know, maximize in that moment, not, you know, detaching from the outcome, everything changed. And, and I knew that I could choose to be happy. If I, you know, even to, no matter what was happening, you know, beyond my control, I could say, what can I find grateful or find something to be happy about and choose that and, and to be that today? So I, I'm a firm believer that through discipline and how we think we can be that to become that, do it and and have more sustainable results over time. When if you spend a day with me and we go to various hip hop events or whatever, you, you'll be shocked at what people do with me. You know, I walk in with two or three legends and everybody will say hi and shake their hand. No one shakes my hand. People hug me. And that tells me. I, I, I think finally in my 70s, I think people, you know, I'm, I'm starting to learn what this is all about because I walk in a room and people, you know, they hug me. Oh, and yeah. that's like, that's the greatest honor is being hugged. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it, uh, it, it, it just tells you the, your aura, your energy and yeah. your, your presence that you, you care and you, you're the example for others to help themselves. Well, I remember... One of the last lectures I did before COVID set in, I, I was in Canada and I was in a room full of people of different ethnic backgrounds, ages, so on and so forth. And I threw something out at the beginning that, and then I left it. I said, we're not going to go there until the end. And I said, how many of you in this room have never been kissed? So immediately everybody was kissing, you know, has a sexual connotation, has emotional kind of, you know. I said, okay, but just put that in the back of your mind for now. And we went on. Yeah. And of course, in the Q&A, someone said, why did you talk about kissing? And Chris, it goes back to exactly what you said. Many times, couples that, that have everything going for them don't last. And you wonder why. And it's not because of the sex or the money or, you know, the love, the affection. It's because they don't kiss. Yeah. They kiss, but it's, you know, they're thinking about the laundry. They're thinking about the phone call. They're, they're kissing exactly. is a Zen action manifested where everything stops. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and if you connect on a physical and visceral level with your partner, the whole world could get sucked into the sun and melt and you wouldn't care. But it requires the same energy of kissing, of creating, of doing a photo, of doing an essay, of doing a lecture is that word that you use is presence to be here now. And yeah. one of the things that I ask when I speak is, again, I put something out at the beginning and ask people to think about it. Where's the hardest place in the universe to go to? 
Yeah. What a hardest place in the universe to be. And of course, in the Q&A, people say, where is the hardest place? And I said, here. They said, you mean in this college or this room? No, here, now, right now. This exactly. Absolutely. And that's what Zen teaches you. It teaches you. That's why the Zen students, you know, do the breathing and all, you know, I saw a film yeah. of some Tibetan monks. And if I had time, I'd talk about me and the Tibetans, but I'm not going to do that. Yeah, uh, we can do that for another show. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But I want to have you back on again. Believe me. Thank you. Thank you. I saw a film yeah. that was taken of some Buddhist monks in Tibet. And they went, They had on robes and they, they went out into the snow. And, you know, it's freezing. They had three feet of snow. And they sat there and they took off their robes and they just had on a little loincloth. And they started meditating. And as I said that, the snow and ice around them melted. And the the lesson that I got from that is yeah. to be here now, to be here at this moment. Absolutely. If you're talking to someone, look them in the eye and talk to them. Forget your laundry. Forget where you parked. Forget your, you know, whatever. Forget that you're hungry. Forget. Look at that. You may never meet that person again. And you don't know what that person has to share to teach you. And you don't know where you've met that person in another life. You don't know where you're going to see them again. You don't know the influence you're going to have on them or the influence. Give them that time. Look at yeah. them. Look them in the eye and talk to them and absorb what they have. And, Absolutely. And that, that, that sense of now is it's the hardest place in the world to be now. Instead of me thinking about the pancakes. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> or the laundry or, or you know. So yeah. helping your kid with the homework or, or you know, book negotiation. No. Now. Be here now. Your words of wisdom are so enlightening. Real quick, if you could just let, you know, people know where they can reach you, if they have any questions, like an a, a email address, a website, whatever yeah. you feel. Yeah. Uh, you could call this session Pancakes and Kisses. <laughs> <laughs> Brother Ernie at gmail.com. B-R-O-T-H-E-R. E-R-N-I-E at gmail.com. And uh, I thank you, Chris, for your time. I thank you for your good energy. Absolutely. And I thank you for making me smile. Absolutely. Ernie, you are a blessing to this world. And I am so grateful that we got connected through Jerry and you're being on the show. Thank you so much. And listeners, we thank you each and every week joining us here at Business Influence. Have a great day.